Great. Well, good morning. We all doing well? Um, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this Esther series and so far. And what I've really enjoyed about it is just how interactive it has been um, and the way that we've said, actually, we're having the kids all in and we're kind of having the young people in as well. But actually, we're doing it in such a way so as to include everyone. And I've had a lot of fun as well, so I hope everyone else has. We're going to be continuing in that series this morning. Um, if anyone doesn't know me, my name is Sam and I'm the youth pastor here. Um, that's kind of one of my roles. And I also get the privilege of kind of speaking sometimes as well, which is great. Before I go on, though, any children in the building, um, I've got a little activity for you to do. So Owen and Rob are going to be getting some balloons out. Okay, so if you want to come down to the front and get a balloon and a pen. So for those of you that have been in the series, you guys would have known. What we've been doing is we've been chatting about one of these villains, which is a guy called Haman. Okay, boo, that's right. And so Haman, our villain... I want you to draw on the balloon the best face for Haman, okay? I want you to draw Haman's head on the balloon, the best kind of depiction of Haman um, that you can. And a little bit later, I'll ask you to kind of wave them at me and show me, and I'll choose the best Haman head um, for a little kind of uh, illustration that we're going to be doing. Is that okay? So we're going to draw the best Haman head Remember, he's a, he's a villain, so you've got to make him mean and scary, um, and then we'll use that later on. But just while they're, they're handing those out, um, I'll just let us know where we kind of are in the story. Uh, so, so as we have gone and been chatting through this, in the big picture of the Bible, where we're at is that the people of Israel, the people of God, are in exile. Okay, So they've been taken from exile from Babylon to Persia. Balloon just popped. We're okay. Um, from Babylon to Persia, so they've been taken into exile by Babylon. Babylon has been taken over by Persia. So the people of God are living underneath pagan, kind of godless rulers. That's kind of the picture that we get. And kind of the key characters in the story are kind of Esther and Mordecai, and they're kind of the good guys. And we have kind of Haman, who's the bad guy. And we then have kind of King Xerxes, who is a drunk basically, um, is kind of what we get in the story, okay? And so in the story so far, what we've had is we've had Xerxes, who doesn't really know what's going on, um, and has kind of been made a bit of a mockery by his wife, um, and has been manipulated by the people in his court. Um, a new guy comes in, who's kind of elevated above everyone else, called Haman, and Haman uh, basically gets really, really annoyed because this guy called Mordecai, who is a Jew, who's kind of the stepfather of Esther, who becomes queen, basically doesn't bow down to him. So what he says is even though Esther's become queen, she hasn't made known that she's a Jew, what he says is, right, I'm not just going to kill Mordecai, I'm just going to wipe out the Jewish people. Okay, so she, he then puts this in. This then goes out as a message that's been sealed by the king to every province in the Persian Empire, which is huge. It kind of stretches from sea to sea. We do have a map um, sort of thing. So if that just goes off at the back roofs, it kind of gives you a bit of a scope um, for kind of the Persian Empire and how big it is. So the capital is where the Asusa is, where the star is, and then it's kind of all the way around. So it's a very big empire. So it's gone out to all of these people, and it says, on this day... Basically, all Jews are to be killed. So that, that's, that's the proclamation that has gone out, okay? And Haman's pretty happy with himself, except the fact that Mordecai is still alive. And this irks him, rather. Okay, and so he now is looking to kill Mordecai himself. But it's not all about Haman, because what we have is we have this, this theme running throughout, that Esther and Mordecai, their kind of faith 
and courage, and therefore God's sovereign intervention as a result of those things, turn this story around. And we're in chapters 7 and 8 this morning, and chapter 6 was a bit of a pivot point, okay? It was a bit of a pivot point um, in the story. Um, And so what this means is that the story seems to have been going downhill for, for the Jewish people, for the people of God. It's been going down, it's been going down, it's been going down, and then all of a sudden, it swung right back around. And all of a sudden, there's been this huge change of circumstances because Haman is forced to honor Mordecai for Mordecai's part in saving the king from a plot. And so he's then going through the streets, leading Mordecai in royal robes on a royal horse, basically saying, this is the man who the king honors. And it's a huge humiliation for him. And we even have this bit where Haman's wife, in verse 13 of chapter 6, says this. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And again, this is kind of this this sign, although God is never explicitly mentioned in this book, there's this this theme of hope that deliverance is going to come from the Jewish people, and that that deliverance is going to be from God. And what appears to look like a certain victory for Haman starts to look like an increasingly overwhelming defeat. Now, we're not going to read chapters 7 to 8 because um, basically it's too long um, and would take up the entire kind of time that we've got. So I'm going to kind of narrate the key points. Um, Kids, especially, whilst I'm narrating this, if you be kind of listening out and thinking about kind of what Haman may look like um, as I'm reading it out and kind of his part to play in this, that would be great. Okay, so Haman and the king are now feasting with Queen Esther, okay? So Queen Esther has risked her life, has come into the presence of the king, and the only thing she's asked is, basically, come and have dinner with me. So you and Haman, come and have dinner with me. And so they're sitting having dinner, and the king says, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, what do you want? And she says, just just bear with, come and have dinner with me again, and then then I'll let you know. And then I'll let you know, okay? So so Haman, um, kind of after this humiliation, is then dragged from his house, dragged back to this, this dinner, this feast with the queen and the king and himself. And basically, the king says, okay, what is it that you want? And Queen Esther turns around and begs for her life and the life of her people, which is not really what I think what the king would have been expecting as a request from the queen. And so rightly, he kind of responds in anger. It's like, who would dare to threaten the life of my queen? Who's got the power, the authority, or the audacity to threaten the life of my queen in my kingdom? And then she turns around and says, Haman, a foe and an enemy, Haman. And you can just imagine Haman's face as she kind of talks about, as she kind of starts talking about who she is and what her people are. And the the penny drops, and you can imagine the sinking feeling. And so the king has been drinking, as he always is in this story, and so therefore goes in a kind of an angry mood into the garden to clear his head and clear his thoughts. Haman stays. Haman knows he is done for. Okay, Haman knows he is done for. He knows that the king has now got it in for him. And so he stays to plead with the king, with the queen, and to plead his life with the queen. The issue with this is, this is a huge break in custom. To be in the presence of the queen on your own 
is a huge break in custom. And so actually the irony is that he seals his fate because as the king comes back in, still in kind of a drunken rage, Haman is seemingly all over Queen Esther. And what he's doing is begging for his life, but the, the king says, is he going to assault the queen even in my own home? And so it kind of seals his fate. And what kind of happens is you get this impression that Haman is not as popular in the palace as you think, because one of the eunuchs who's kind of in attendance there kind of steps out the shadows, and he kind of just goes, kind of just so you know, Haman, you know, Mordecai, who you honored, well, he was building this massive stake to put him on in his back garden. Just so you're aware, that's, that's just there. And then kind of slinks back into the shadows. Um, and the king just goes, all right, we'll put him on it then. And so in this incredible kind of poetic justice, Haman, who has planned the death of Mordecai, suffers the exact fate that he had planned. And it's this really incredible, like, poetic justice, huge turn of the story. And as we've been going down and down and down and things seem hopeless for the Jewish people and Esther and Mordecai, now we start to see the trajectory turning around and starting to go up. Now, at this point, I would like to choose a Haman balloon. Has anyone chosen a Haman balloon? Anyone drawn a Haman? Can we have a wave? Can we have a wave? Show me some, some Haman balloons. Right, Owen, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Because of the lights, I can't really see. Can you pick a Haman balloon for me, please? Let's have a look. What have we got? Oh, the hair on this one is incredible. No, look at the nose on that. That's brilliant. Great, right, do you know what, Neo, just simply for the nose on this, I'm going to choose this one. Thank you very much, guys. You can keep your balloons. Um, so if you want to go back to your seat, and Owen is going to be bringing out my little prop to help demonstrate kind of what this would have looked like. Okay, can you attach Heyman's head, please? I'm just going to put that there. Okay. So Owen is going to attach Haman's head, and we're kind of going to get Haman hanging um, on that spike there. Now, if at this point in the story you think, that's it. God has come through. The Jewish people are safe. There is nothing for them to fear anymore. You would actually be completely mistaken. There is a real problem for the Jews because there is still an order in place in the capital in Susa, where Esther is and where Mordecai is, and where kind of all those people live, and across the entire Persian Empire, that states still that on this day, at this point, in this month, all the Jews are going to be wiped out. And this is the part of, of Esther that we often quite downplay, is that Esther actually goes into the court of the king a second time. So we kind of go that her going into the court of the king the first time was this incredible act of bravery and faith and courage. And in Haman being killed, we kind of go, just like that, um, we kind of go, actually, this is it. This is the victory. But it's not. The life of every single Jew is still going to be forfeit on a certain day of a certain month coming soon. And so Esther actually has to repeat the entire process she has to once again go before the king, and this time she goes before him weeping and begging and pleading for him to revoke, to turn around what he has said he's going to do in killing all the Jewish people. And so again, he points his scepter, again, she's accepted, and then he's a little bit taken aback. 
So she's like, would you save the people? My people, save my people, don't do it, revoke it. And he just goes, well, I've already killed Haman. What more do you really want from me? I tell you what, Mordecai, I'm going to elevate to basically the position of Haman. He's going to have my, the signet ring from my finger. And basically, you guys just go and write whatever it is that you want to write to help your people. Kind of, he just kind of washes his hands and just goes, you just... Just do what you want to do. I've kind of killed Haman. Was that not enough for you, woman? Sort of thing. And kind of, and kind of just shrugs them off. And so then Mordecai and Esther, then are given this, this opportunity. And so they, they write an order. The only issue that they have got is the order cannot revoke what the king has said. So what it can't say is, you know that previous order says that everyone needs to be killed. Okay, that's not going to happen anymore. They can't say that. They're not allowed to say that. That is the only kind of little caveat that King Xerxes puts on him giving them the power. Okay, he says you can't revoke it. You can't take it back. So what they do instead is they write this command. They put it on the fastest horses across the, in, in the city. They send it out into the capital. They send it out across the entire Persian Empire. And the, the, the result of that, what, what they write is... The, the Jews have got permission from the king to gather as armed forces and to defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate their enemies. That a, a people, a persecuted people living underneath a pagan king in a pagan empire are, giving, are given permission not just to defend themselves, but to destroy their enemies. This is a huge victory for the Jewish people. They are told that they not only have to kind of, they're not only able to kind of take up arms and defend, they're allowed to gather in force and destroy their enemies. Any who have plotted against them, any who have attacked them, maligned them, mistreated them, on a certain day in the certain month that was supposed to be the day when they were destroyed, now becomes the day of their ultimate victory. And we're going to hear about that a bit more next week. And so what it says in the end of chapter 8 is this, is that the Jews have light and gladness and joy and honor. That God has come through for his people. It doesn't say that explicitly, but it is exactly the thing that we've been hoping for from the start of Esther, through all the injustice, through them living in exile. We start to see God coming through for his people. Even so much so that You've got non-Jewish people that all of a sudden come out of the woodwork and go, yeah, I'm Jewish. I'm, I'm one of them because the fear of the Jews has fallen onto the people. And that everyone rejoiced because of what God had done. Now, the great irony, of course, in this entire interaction is that Xerxes is supposed to be the king of a huge empire. The biggest empire in the world at the time, they thought. And as a result, he's supposed to be unmatched in wisdom and power and knowledge and influence. And yet, he does this thing he regrets, and he has no power to take it back. So he's both proven to be neither truly wise or completely powerful. That actually what this is exposing in Xerxes and actually in that structure is that Xerxes, and more importantly, his word and his command is flawed. It's unwise, and it contradicts itself. And how much of what we receive 
is like that. The messages we receive from governments, the messages we receive through the news, weather reports, social media, every, the things that fill our lives, how much of it is exactly that? It's unwise, it's flawed, and it constantly contradicts itself. This whole idea of news and fake news, no one knows what to believe. Because actually the words that are spoken so often are exactly like the words of King Xerxes. They're neither wise nor powerful. And people in power often don't actually have the ability to do what they say they're going to do. And isn't that the issue of so many people in our current political climate? For us, though, we have the Word of God. And the Word of God is not so for us. The Word of God is not unwise. It's not flawed. It doesn't contradict itself. Numbers 23.19 says this, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And kids and young people, I want you to hear this especially, but it is for all of us. But for you especially, I want you to hear this. You can trust what God says. I'm going to say that again. You can trust what God says. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. When he says he loves you, he means it. And for the Jewish people at this time, reading the book of Esther, that is exactly what they're hearing. The promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises that have come through Moses and the law, the promises that have led to them entering the promised land, seeing a kingdom established, and even taken away from it, remain true. God is for his people. God will protect his people. God will deliver his people. And there is a day coming where his people will return to him. This is the word they would have heard. This would have brought hope and peace and joy to them, seeing God delivering his people. And his word, the Bible, is God's written word to us. It is our authority on all things, and it shows us who God is. But there's also another word through whom God has spoken, through whom God shows us who he is. Does anyone know that, who that is? Any children or young people or adults, anyone want to shout it out? Who, who is the word through whom God has spoken? Does anyone know? Who's, Jesus. Jesus is the word through whom God has spoken. In John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that the biggest way that God has spoken to us is through his son, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says, in many times and in many ways, God has spoken through the prophets, but now God has spoken through his son. You see, Jesus is God's word to us. Jesus perfectly obeyed all of God's commands. He did them, every single one of them, all of them, and we could never do that. He lived the life as God's word that we could never live doing what we could never do. And not only that, but 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all of God's promises are yes to us in Jesus, which means all the things he's ever promised are yes in Jesus. Jesus has made true and is making true every single one of God's promises to his people. 
every single one of God's promises to his people, Jesus has made true and is making true. And there is a day coming when it will all be true. Completely and fully forever. And Jesus as God's word proves to us that he loves us. Jesus as God's word proves to us that he loves us in his death and resurrection. And I just want to use the story of Esther to kind of show us how that's the case. Because you see, when we read the book of Esther, if when we read ourselves into the story, which we always do, right? And we always put ourselves as the heroes, because that's what we do in stories. We read ourselves as Esther in the story. And actually, in many ways, that's true. Because we are God's people living in a pagan culture for such a time as this, for God to use us for his plans and purposes in blessing and building his people. So yes, in many ways, we are Esther in this story. If we're going to read ourselves into it, we're going to take something from it. We take Esther as our example, as who we are in this story, and are encouraged by it. The person we never assume that we are is Haman. We never assume that we are Haman. And yet, the Bible is so clear that when we are outside of Christ, when we don't know or follow Jesus, or before we knew and followed Jesus, we were an enemy of God. And so if you're going to use this as kind of an allegory or an analogy for the gospel, we are Haman in the story when we don't know Jesus or before we knew Jesus. Which means that when we stand before God, not just as a king of an empire, but the king of all kings, the lord of all laws, the the sustainer and creator of the world, we stand accused. And we don't stand accused by an innocent Esther. We stand accused by Satan who points out to God all of our sin and shame. All the things that we say, think, and do against God and his word. Satan outs us before God. Look at them. Look at him. Look what he's done. Look at the things that he thinks. Look at the way that he treats other people. Look at the way that she gossips about that person behind their back. He outs us before God. And as we stand accused, our pride is revealed. The way that we, we think that we're better gods than God. That we, that we are in control of our lives and we do a better job of it than God does. The way which we, we know better. The way which what God says doesn't really apply to us in the way that it does to other people. Or the ways that actually we're better than that person, so us and God are good. You know, it's not like we're that person. We stand accused. And it's that very pride and sin that impales us. It's that very pride and sin that kills us. The Bible says that when you are outside of Christ, you are dead in your sin. That the very things that we think we're, we're doing well outside of God that enable us to kind of either get right with God or live a good life or be happy is the very stuff that kills us spiritually. It impales us on it, on our pride and our sin. Our story is not like that of Haman. And our story is not like that of Haman is because we have a different king. And we have a different king who is the true king. The true king of the whole world. And he doesn't punish us for our sin, but instead is impaled on a cross on our behalf. Dying the death that we deserve and taking our punishment. 
Now, if in the story of Esther, what we just read was that Haman was outed and Xerxes said, well, he deserves death and that's got to happen, but I'm going to take his place, it would have seemed the most weird, surreal, stupid decision anyone could ever make. Haman is completely guilty. He is an enemy of the queen and therefore the king. He is an enemy of the Persian Empire, just doing what he wants, no matter what. And yet, if Xerxes had been killed in his place, we'd be absolutely bowled over, wouldn't we? And yet, that is precisely what Jesus does for us. We are enemies of God. That we are dead in our sins and impaling ourselves over and over again on our pride and our ego and our sin. And yet Jesus gets impaled for us. And yet Jesus, though perfectly innocent, though like I said, lived the life we could never live as God's word. Took all of the promises of God and made them yes to us because of what he did on the cross. And in doing so, we are now completely forgiven. And can now know and experience the unfailing, unending, incredible love of God forever. The story of Esther is not necessarily about the gospel. It's not necessarily about Jesus. But it is a really useful way of looking at how Jesus and what Jesus did for us on the cross. And what that means for us. Now, for those of you that have, have been in church a long time or have been Christians a long time, it is so easy to get accustomed to that message. But actually, the reason why we don't come away from the gospel, one, is because it's the only way which we're saved. But two, because actually the gospel, what Jesus has done for us and what that means, is supposed to impress on our lives every single day. So that we live lives of gratitude. We live lives of thanks. We live lives of obedience to God every day single day. And so if you have heard that message a thousand times, hear it again this morning and allow it to encourage you into obedience and worship today and throughout the whole of this week. And if you are here this morning and you have never heard that before, or you've kind of been in church a little while, but you've never received Jesus, you've never taken his offer of life in him as he takes your, your punishment, your sin upon himself on the cross, and you ask for his forgiveness, then would you do that this morning? Would you come to the true king, the merciful king, the one who has been impaled on your behalf? And if you do so, Pray this prayer with me. Should we all just bow our heads? If you want to accept Jesus for the first time this morning, just pray this prayer with me. Kids and young people, if this is you and for you as well, and you want to pray this prayer, you can. Just repeat after me if you want it out loud, but also in your head. Father God, I thank you that you sent your son to die for me. I pray that you would forgive me for all of my sins. And that you would fill me with your spirit so that I may live a life of freedom in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to invite the band back up and I'm just going to pray to close. Father, we thank you so much for the story of Esther. We thank you that in over the entire course of history, in every book of the Bible, as your people have been maligned or mistreated or rebelled against you, that you have proven again and again and again that you are faithful, 
Lord, that you come through. And thank you that now as your people, we know that every single one of your promises are yes to us in Jesus who has done it, who is coming back, and then every single thing will be completely true forever. In Jesus' name, amen.